should be good. Mark chapter 4 this morning. Beginning in verse 1. Again, he began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, Listen, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it Since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold, sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. Father, we are grateful for your word that you have preserved so that it could confront us today. And we ask you to do that very thing, that your spirit would empower your word to do your work here in us. And as you work in us, may you work through us to impact our city with your word. Thank you that Jesus makes this all possible. It's for his glory we ask these things. It's in his name we ask these things. Amen. Jesus is well into his ministry, and it seems like every time Mark gives us more information about who is listening to Jesus, the crowds are getting bigger. Again, the crowds have grown so large that Jesus is out of room on land. So again, he's got to climb into a boat, set off from the land onto the water and the shore, and begin to teach the people. And there are actually spots around the Sea of Galilee where scholars have gone and they have called these spots like the Bay of Parables because they were good spots where you can have this natural amphitheater effect where the acoustics are just right that a person could sit in the boat right off the land and talk to people sitting on the hillside and they could easily hear him. It's almost as if he, the one who created all things, knew the acoustics and the topography of the land and the sea just right. So he knows 
hey, it's getting crowded, no problem, just give me a boat. I can sit right here, talk to everybody, it's more comfortable. I'm sitting, they're sitting, let's do this. And Jesus begins to teach the people, and his teaching sounds very different from what he's been doing, because now he's explicitly teaching them in parables. So let's talk about what parables are and why Jesus would teach with parables. And then look at this parable in particular and then deal with some implications throughout. Parables are probably the most famous method of Jesus' teaching. Like people, when they think of Jesus' amazing teaching skills, they think of parables. But parables are more than what most people think of when they think of them. Most of them think of Jesus like grabbing stuff from creation or nature and using them as object lessons. Or the real simplistic definition of a parable is this a, it's an earthly message with a, a heavenly meaning. And those are true, it is that, but it's, as always, more than that. Uh, Danny Aiken, president of uh, Southeastern Seminary in, in North Carolina, makes a few observations about parables. Parables provide insight into the nature coming, the nature of, the coming of, the growth of, and the consummation of the kingdom of God. In fact, in the parallel account of this in Matthew 13, there's, the whole chapter is full of parables, and they're called the parables of the kingdom. They're all about this kingdom that Jesus says he's come to proclaim, to bring into fruition. This already not yet kingdom where it's already here, it's growing, it's multiplying, but it's not yet fully consummated. One day it is, and some of the parables talk about that as well. What that day is going to be like when Christ returns. Parables are designed, secondly, to be provocative, surprising, to stimulate our thinking and really think about what we're hearing. They use everyday objects, events, or circumstances to illustrate spiritual truths often with an unexpected twist or turn. And we'll get to the unexpected twist or turn in this parable. Thirdly, parables reveal more truth to those who are receptive and will hide truth from those who aren't. And we'll talk about that in a few minutes. But parables are intended to reveal to some and conceal from others. Parables make up 35% of all gospel teaching. And parables usually have one main point, Sometimes two, and, and rarely, but occasionally, three main points. The, the mistake that people have made with parables in the, in the past of, of the history of the church is they will allegorize parables, so they'll take every little detail of a parable and make it stand for something. And you can Google examples of that, like the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, and these people are taking every single detail in that story, making it stand for something else, and, and that's a mistake. The, the parable has to mean something to those people who are there listening to it for the first time. And so that's your number one check. Does, does it make sense to the people who are there? And usually they'll have one point, sometimes two, occasionally three. Lastly, parables ultimately draw attention to Jesus and his kingdom and our responsibility to make a choice regarding our commitment to him. They, they put us in this place of tension where we have to decide. We have to contemplate. We have to think about these truths that are being given to us. Jesus lays out the purpose of parables in verses 10 through 12, one of the most difficult sections of the New Testament. And when he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables so that they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Very difficult in our time this morning. Let's see if we can grab enough meaning to understand what he's saying. Now, first of all, think about the context in which he gives this. If you go back into Mark chapter 3, Jesus had called his disciples to follow him, come be with me in relationship, and go do my work. So these are the disciples of Jesus. Then he's confronted by his family who thinks he's crazy, and they want to seize him, to grab him and take him out of the situation. 
Then he's confronted by Jewish religious leaders who have uh, spent time deliberating and discussing and talking about what they think about Jesus. He has power. It's obvious. We think Jesus, our final decree is your power is not of God. It's of Satan. And Jesus tells them, if that's what you think, you've committed the unforgivable sin. You have brought judgment on yourself if your hearts are that hard that you're attributing to Satan, the work of God. And then last week we looked at his family. His family came. They thought they had access to him because of their relationship with him biologically. And Jesus says, no, who are my mothers, my brothers, my sisters? It's those who do my will, do my work. So again, just just think about this. The people who are with Jesus and do his work. That's his new family. So disciples with Jesus doing his work. New family, those with Jesus doing his work. In between, you have these people who don't understand him, think he's crazy, or they outright reject him. So the language is very intentional. Jesus then goes to the sea. He teaches to the crowd, leaves this parable just hanging in the air, and then to his disciples and those who are with him alone, those on the inside, he gives the meaning of the parable. Those on the outside, those who aren't with Jesus and aren't doing his work, all they get is a parable. Those who are on the inside, they get the interpretation, the meaning of the parable. Very intentional language. Uh, Matthew 13, the, the, the parallel recording of this parable, gives us a little bit more insight. Matthew 13, 11 through 12. To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Those who are with him who do his work will get more revelation and truth. Those on the outside will get no explanation, only more parables. Truth will be concealed in the parables. If you have ears to hear, receive, and obey, you get more of Jesus. That's a good thing. But for those who reject and are hard-hearted, you get less revelation, which is actually a merciful The dividing line is this, their response to Jesus and his words. Same word, same message, same truth, but for some it brings life, and for others it brings death. For some it brings salvation, for others it brings judgment. The same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. Jesus is explaining these different responses to his ministry and himself. This is what's going on, guys. Those who are on the inside, part of this new family, those those are the ones who are with Jesus, who have ears to hear, who are receiving him, and who are going out and doing his work. They're bearing fruit for the kingdom. But for those on the outside, the truth of Jesus remains hidden. Yes, because their hearts are hard. And yes, because the truth is hidden from them. Like This is why the Jews did not receive Jesus as Messiah. It wasn't just that he didn't fit the parameters for what they thought the Messiah should be. Like They had this little checklist. Messiah's going to do this and be like this, and we're going to see this happen through the Messiah. He didn't fit those parameters because he didn't come to rule and reign as a king on earth. At that time, he came to suffer and serve as a humble servant. So because he didn't fit those parameters, the Jews were rejecting Jesus. Yes, that is true, but they also had to reject Jesus. This is part of God's plan for the Messiah's own people to reject him. You see this throughout the New Testament, throughout the scriptures, rather. God calls Isaiah to go preach to a people 
who will not hear and receive your message. Gee, thanks God. I get to go preach to people whose ears are closed and eyes are blind. Pharaoh would not let the Israelites leave Egypt because his heart was hard against God. Yes, but also because God hardened his heart. All through Exodus 4 through 12, you have Pharaoh hardening his heart and God hardening Pharaoh's heart. Judas was chosen to be the betrayer, yet Judas made all the necessary choices to betray Jesus. This tension, this teaching rather, creates a tension between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. And Mark doesn't resolve it. He just kind of leaves it hanging there, which is what you have to do. There is no way to resolve it. It, it, Both truths exist in tension, side by side. Both are true. Acts 2.23 shows us this tension. Um, Peter preaching his sermon on the day of Pentecost. He says this, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So which is it? Is it God's plan to crucify Jesus? Or is it man's wicked sin that killed Jesus, an innocent man? It's both. It's both God's plan and it was their wickedness, their political manipulations, their concern for their own protection politically. Pilate and Herod and other people who are involved in the killing of an innocent man will stand and give an account for that one day, and it was all according to God's preordained plan. That it had to happen. The Jews rejected Jesus because they didn't believe he fit the parameters of Messiah, but that was ordained by God that they would do that so that he would die and crucified, be crucified and kill himself, uh, allow himself to be killed for the nation. Everyone who ends up in heaven will be there because they are elect, chosen, and because they chose Jesus. And everyone who ends up in hell will be there because they are not elect or chosen, and because they rejected the revelation of Jesus and God. No one will be in heaven against or hell against their will or outside of the will of God. You know, why is it like this? This is, this is very hard. We don't, we don't like this part of theology. Why doesn't God just save any, everyone? Why doesn't God save more? And the, the question is actually this. Why does God save anyone, right? We're all born rebellious. We're all born spiritually dead. We're all born with animosity against the God who created us. We all shake our fists in the face of our creator and say, no, I want it my way. The fact that God would save anyone from the path that we're already born on is an incredible act of mercy and grace. And he chooses to save millions, billions have been saved by his love, grace, and mercy. And so this tension is created that divides people into groups and this tension is necessary because for some, you hear this and you're humbled. Like you're You're amazed that you're saved. And you run to Jesus for life and assurance and salvation. And for some, they hear this and, I don't care. That's weird. That's hard. I don't want to deal with that. The gospel is an aroma of life to some and an aroma of death to others. Jesus is already experiencing this. The early church would later experience this. We are experiencing this today. Like if this is creating angst in you, this is good. The condition of your heart is being revealed. 
If you're apathetic and you don't care, may God have mercy on your soul. May the Holy Spirit this morning soften you to the work and the word of Christ so that you would be receptive to his gospel. The parables are given to reveal truth to those who have ears to hear and conceal truth from those who reject Jesus and his gospel. So let's get into this parable. There's really three main characters, the seed, the sower, and the soils. Jesus gives this parable outside by the Sea of Galilee. It's not possible to imagine that as they're sitting there on the banks of the Sea of Galilee and Jesus is sitting in a boat teaching them that somewhere within eyesight, there might be a farmer doing this very thing, scattering seed. Even if there weren't, it wasn't in their line of sight, it definitely was in their mind. They understood it. Like this is part of their culture. People got it. So the seed, the seed is identified by Jesus as the word. This goes all the way back to creation when God spoke and creation came into existence. From nothing to everything through his word. We later find out in places like Hebrews 1 that this word of God creating all things was in fact Jesus. Hebrews 1, long ago and at many times in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in his last days he's spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he, Jesus, upholds, sustains the universe by the word of his power. It's the word of God that creates life and salvation in us. Romans 10, 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. 1 Peter 1, 23, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Of God. It is the Word of God that is the agent of life, creation, salvation. It is the Word of God that actually sustains life. You are alive today because of the Word of God. You're alive. The universe is still working today because of the Word of God. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my Word, Jesus said, will endure forever. It's His Word that does this. But the Word is uh, not just the gospel, the good news of who Jesus, what Jesus has done. The Word is any aspect of that demonstrates the character and attributes of God. So 2 Timothy 3, 15-17, and at, Paul's talking to Timothy, and how from childhood you, Timothy, have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scriptures breathed out by God, his, his character, his nature is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be a complete, equipped for every good work. The seed is the word. The seed is Jesus. The seed is the gospel. The seed is God's word. The seed is not the crossing church. Seed is not the crossing church. As much as we are grateful for what God has done in us and through us, as much as we may like how we are set up as a church plant, how we're doing things, we are not the Savior of Monroe. We're not. In fact, I felt conviction just this, just I think yesterday or Friday about things that I've said about the Crossing Church. There's nothing like us in the city of Monroe. We're the only ones doing what we're doing. How arrogant can I be to say that? We are not the only church proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are not the only church doing good work, loving and serving our city. We are not the only church making disciples. Who do we think we are when we think we are the Savior of Monroe? We've got to be here or the gospel is just going to fizzle into nothing. 
Monroe, the, the Crossing Church could die tomorrow and God's work would continue in the city of Monroe. We are not the seed. The seed is not being nice and serving people at Jack Hayes, the Oaks, ULM Campus, BCM, St. Joseph Hospice, or all these other places where we are sent on mission. We've identified all these places where we can be missional. We have engaged as MCs, as individuals in our jobs, our schools. We've done some good things by serving people and being nice. That's not the seed, though. That's not going to save anybody. Just being nice. Doing good things and hard things. It might convert them to us because they're impressed with us. Oh, look at this church, all the things that they're doing. And we become their functional savior, but that's not the calling we've been given. We've been sent to go through these open doors that God has given us for the gospel, the word of God, to be proclaimed with our lips, not just demonstrated in our actions. That is how he would change our lives or change the lives in our city. The seed is not our clever, creative, or cute gospel presentations. The seed is not our personality or our ability to persuade someone. The seed is not our ability to articulate the gospel in just the right way. Like we've got a little sales pitch. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. God, man, Christ response. Two ways to live. Whatever, whatever method you've come up with. Roman uh, road of salvation. I believe one way that our camp gets off the rails is when we start putting more faith in our way of articulating the gospel than in the gospel. If we use the right words to, to demonstrate our gospel centrality, that's going to be the thing that does it. We have to say words in just the right way or, or we have failed because it's not gospel-centered enough. And when we do that, what we're doing unintentionally is we're creating second-class Christians. There are those who articulate it well, and then there's everybody else. Work harder to get to the level of everybody else, and then you can go share the gospel. Until then, you're going to get it all wrong. And we're placing this weight on ourselves that God never intended. We're creating a standard of understanding, articulating the gospel that makes us hesitant to share the gospel because we can't articulate it as well as somebody else. God showed mercy to the entire city of Nineveh through Jonah and his very short condemning message. But Jonah proclaimed the word that God gave him and an entire city of pagan, rebellious, sinful people turned from their sin and turned to God with, with a sermon that none of us would preach because it was the word of God. God saved Charles Spurgeon through a sermon that he could hardly remember given by a guy who was terrible because it was a snowy day and nobody else could make it to church. But God took one verse of scripture from that sermon and one bony finger stuck in the face of Charles Spurgeon and brought him to Christ. How many of us remember the sermon that was proclaimed, the message that was proclaimed when you came alive in Christ? Like I remember one part of it. I can't even tell you what the text was that God preached from. I remember the guy. Some of you don't even remember the actual point in time when you came alive in Christ. It happened over a, a progression of a series of events. But hardly any of us can think, oh, they, they said it just right. I'm in. It's the gospel. It's a mystery how we come alive in Christ. It's not hinging upon if we say it just the right way. Put, don't put your confidence in your, your power of articulation or your power of personality or persuasion Put your confidence in the power of the word of God. It's not your words or your methods or your personality that's going to convert people. It's the word of God. Just share the word. 
And do it with faith and confidence in the Word. Trust the Spirit of God to empower the Word of God to do the work of God. All right, that's the seed. The soils, this brings us to the four types of soils that are indicative of four types of hearers. The first is the hard soil. Verse 15, Jesus is explaining this. And this parable is a crucial important. In fact, he says in verse 13, do you not understand this parable? How do you understand all the parables? So you want to understand all the parables? You've got to get this parable. Verse 15, these are the ones sown along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. This beaten down path is so hard, the seed doesn't even penetrate. It just sits on the surface until the birds come along and eat it which is a picture of how Satan is actively working to keep the word from entering the hearts of unbelievers. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers and keeping them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan is actively working to keep the eyes of the hard-hearted blinded to the truth of the gospel. I'm going to pray for your lost friends. Pray for God to open their eyes to see. In this context of this parable, it would be the Jewish religious leaders Jesus just confronted in Mark 3. They have hearts like concrete, where the seed of God's word just bounces off. Then the shallow soil, verses 16 and 17, and the, these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall Away. So there's, there's soft dirt, there's enough of a layer of a dirt for the seed to penetrate into the soil and to germinate, to begin to take root, and life appears. Plant material is coming out of the ground. They receive it with joy. Right then, it looks like they're in. But the, the soil is very shallow. Right underneath the dirt is rocks where roots can't go deep. So as soon as the sun comes out, the plant material doesn't have deep enough roots to get moisture. And so the plant material dies under the heat of the sun, which Jesus calls persecution, tribulation, because of the word. So some respond to the gospel, but as soon as the heat is applied and they're ostracized for following God, then they're out. This is going to happen to hundreds of students this summer at summer camp. They're all in, fired up, look at me go as soon as they get back to campus in August and September and they begin to be ostracized because they're not engaging in sinful activity or they're not doing the things that everybody else is doing. A lot of them will walk away. Don't dismiss that work because that's part of the Spirit of God progressing people, bringing them to life and salvation. And for many in this room, that might be part of your testimony. I think I rededicated my life like six summers in a row before Christ finally made me alive in Him. Then you have the weedy or distracted soil, verses 18 and 19. And others are the ones sown among the thorns, those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. This soil again has soft soil to receive the seed of the word. Again, the seed germinates, life springs up, it appears to be fine, but in the soil there are other weeds, and we know that weeds grow faster than healthy plants. And as the weeds begin to grow and constrict the root system, the weeds choke the life of the plant, and the plant withers and fades. 
And Jesus identifies the weeds as the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desire for other things. Well, that must have been something in the first century because we don't have that problem today. Let's move on. How many times is God's work hindered because God's people are chasing hobbies and dollars? How many times are prayers unprayed because we're distracted? How many times is the word not engaged in because we have better things to do? How many hard and healthy conversations go unhad because of our cares of this world? Because of smartphones, we may be the most distracted people in the history of civilization. I can't imagine a people more distracted than we are today. Like, if I want to really engage the Word, I've actually had to go back to a, a paper Bible, right? Because if I'm on, trying to do it on my phone, or I'm trying to do it on my computer, bells are whistling and dinging, and things are going off, and notifications are popping up, and I, I'm just jumping all over the place, like some ADHD squirrel. And so I actually had to get paper, a paper Bible, a paper journal, and write with my hand a pen to really focus on the Word. I don't always do that. Like, I should do it every day because it's so much better. I'm not contemplating. I haven't decided. I'm contemplating uh, when we move into our house, putting a box by the front door. And so if you come over and hang out with me, you've got to put your devices in the box. Because I don't want to engage with you and have you doing this. Right? And I don't want my family to try and engage with me and we're all doing this. Because it's so frustrating when we have real, live people right in front of you. We're so distracted. It's amazing. We can put our phones away. We can put them on do not disturb. We can go a couple of hours without being distracted and the world doesn't collapse. It's crazy. The world actually doesn't revolve around us. Lastly, the fertile soil, verse 20. But those are the ones who are sown on the good soil, the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. So they hear the word, they receive it as fertile, it digs deep roots, produces amazing crop, 30, 60, 100 fold. This is the shocking twist. This is the part of the parable where people's jaws hit the floor. Because for the farmer in that day, to yield a crop of 8 to 1, 10 to 1 was shocking. So when Jesus talks about a yield of 30, 60, 100 to 1, only God could do that. That's a miracle. Without all the fertilizers and technology and manipulation we have today, just a good old-fashioned crop is much smaller than this supernatural crop. So what's the point? When the seed buries deep in us, we respond with faith. We hear, we listen, we think, we meditate. We let the seed do the work in us. We will bear fruit for the kingdom of God. That is supernatural. That's something that could only be explained by the work of the Word and the Spirit in us. We're able to do things which are only possible because God is in us, working in us and through us. 
Like the only way I could love and forgive this person is because the word and the spirit of God are working in me. The only way I have joy in this situation is because it's God doing it in me. The only way I can have patience and goodness and kindness and peace and hope and love and self-control is because it's the spirit and the word working in me. The only way I have faith, the only way I have boldness to proclaim the word of God is because it's the word and spirit working in me. So question, what fruit is showing up in your life that's only explanation is supernatural in origin? What fruit could you point to? And you're like, the only way that's happening is because it's, it's God doing this work in me. Because the Spirit is leading you to obey the Word and respond in faith. Like we all have natural temperaments and personalities that are a gift of God's grace, which are good. Right? But you don't have to be a Christian to be hardworking or disciplined. You don't have to be a Christian to be nice and kind. What fruit is being produced in you that has supernatural origins? Like maybe you struggle with laziness and you've been productive for a season. You're like, that's, that's not me. That's God in me, making me that kind of person. Maybe you struggle with discipline and you've been experiencing and demonstrating uh, self-control. Maybe you struggle to love your enemy and you've been able to do that lately. Someone that's hard to love. Maybe you struggle to, to, to be nice and genuinely care about people, then lately you've been genuinely kind. Like it's not a show. You're not just putting on a show so they're being friends with you. Like, I genuinely want to be nice to this person. That's, that's a work of God in me. Maybe you struggle being timid about your faith, and lately you have been bold. You have been speaking up. And that's a work of the Spirit and the Word of God. What fruit is showing up in your life that can only be explained as supernatural? So here's the deal about these souls and the, the pictures of our hearts. They are not static. We are people with hearts who change. At one time, the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 7 stood before uh, a group of uh, an angry mob as they stoned Stephen. As Stephen was preaching the gospel, they're stoning Stephen. And Paul, at the time called Saul, just stood there and watched How did Saul, Paul, respond to that? Repentance and faith? No, more persecution. He went and found more Christians to have the same kind of things happen to them or be arrested. Paul was incredibly hard-hearted until that day on the road to Damascus, he met Jesus and everything changed. We are not static. Our hearts aren't set. We change. This morning, you may be distracted. You may be hard-hearted. Your mind may be 10,000 miles away. And you're just counting the minutes until I'm done so you can go on to something else. But your heart can actually change right now. Like you wake up on some mornings, your heart's open and receptive to the word, it bears fruit. But other times you wake up and you're just this distracted mess. And so this morning, church, brothers and sisters, examine your hearts. If your heart is not fertile, ready to be fruitful as you receive the word, let the spirit work through the word in your heart to bear fruit fruit, then see, believe, hear the gospel of Jesus Christ again. He's here. He's here to proclaim His love, grace, and mercy for you and me. While we were sinners, Christ died for us so that we could be made alive in Christ, given life in Christ, the Spirit of God could come dwell in us and make us this people that can actually bear fruit for the kingdom of God so that through us, in us, people see us and they see God. It doesn't make any sense. Nobody should look at me and see God. Nobody should look at us and see God, but they do. 
Because that's the work Christ has, can, and wants to do in us. He can change your heart. You don't have to be where you are right now. Let the Spirit of God, let the gospel transform you. We need this. Our city needs this. Our nation needs this. Our mother said this. Most Americans believe that their major problem is something that has happened to them and that their solution is to be found within them. In other words, they believe they have an alien problem that is to be resolved with an inner solution. What the gospel says, however, is that we have an inner problem that demands an alien solution, a righteousness that is not our own. America has a heart problem. Our city has a heart problem. The Crossing Church has a heart problem. And only the gospel of Jesus can save it and can change it. That brings us lastly to the sower. This could be Jesus or anyone who spreads the message of Jesus, which would be any follower of Jesus. And notice, notice where he scatters the seed of the word of God. He scatters it everywhere. This is called indiscriminate sowing. He's not soil testing. He is seed sowing. He is not soil testing. He is seed sowing. And as we live to scatter the seed of the gospel far and wide to anyone and everyone, we see it is not our job to determine the condition of the soil before we scatter the seed. Our job is to throw the seed on the ground and let their response to the word determine the condition of their heart. And I can be the worst at this. In the situation in public, I feel like the Holy Spirit's prompting me, you need to talk to that person, go up and have a conversation with them, begin uh, to get into a conversation that can lead to the gospel. And, and I will totally determine the condition of their heart before I ever say a word. Like, eh, they don't think that's weird. That's kind of awkward. You know, I'm sure they don't, not going to care. I'm sure they're already a Christian. Hello, we're in the Bible at South, right? I used to, my excuse used to be this. Well, my church, a pastor's in Sterlington. I'm in Monroe. I can't disciple them because of this big distance here. So I'm just not even going to bother. Yeah, that doesn't work anymore, right? I will work so hard to test the soil that I refuse to remember. It's not my job to do that. My job is to scatter the seed, throw it on the ground, and see what happens. I'm just the messenger. We're just the messenger. In fact, in that moment, when the Spirit is prompting me, I'm revealing the condition of my heart. Am I so hard-hearted that I'm just rejecting the work of the Spirit and the Word right then? Am I so distracted I don't even notice? Am I so worried about rejection and persecution that I don't, I'm not obedient? Here, here's the reality, brothers and sisters. There is fertile soil all around us every day. All through this city. Neighborhoods, schools, businesses. All around us there's fertile soil. How do you know it's fertile? How do you know it's fruitful? You don't know until you scatter the seed of the Word of God. We cannot determine that until the Word of God is engaged with the soil, the soul of that person's heart. That's the only way we find out. Like sometimes it's like we're sitting in a lab and we're discussing all the different techniques and methods to determine all the types of soils that are out there. Well, what if we do this? What if we do that? And we're just wasting all of our time when we're not called to figure it out, we're called to scatter the seeds. Go throw the seed, cast the seed out there, and see what happens. There's only one method to find out the soil, the, the heart of a person, and that's for them to be engaged with the Word of God. So we spread the gospel, scatter the gospel indiscriminately, far and wide, to anyone and everyone, as much as possible. 
And then we wait and see what the Spirit of God does and the Word of God does to reveal the hearts of that person. Do you, do you get this image? Now, does this mean like we do foolish, non-contextualized things? Okay, let's put the gospel on a flyer. Let's get a helicopter. Let's go above Monroe, take 100,000 flyers and just drop them. And find what fertile soil that we can find. That's scattering the seed, right? Let's pair up two by two, get white shirts, ties, and bikes and go door to door knocking. Let's scatter the seed. Just knock on every door in Monroe. That would work, right? No, we don't, we don't do it in a foolish way where we offend people with our methods. We're all in prison because we've littered 100,000 flyers over the city of Monroe. We don't offend people with our methods. The only thing we want to offend people is the gospel. And so we do discuss culture and we talk about what are some ways to get the gospel in our context where people receive it. Maybe we knock on the door not to intrude, but to invite Hey, you're living on the street. I'm having a party Friday night. You want to come eat some burgers with me? I can doors can still work. All the methods that sometimes we criticize can still work. We shouldn't dismiss any method. We're indiscriminately sowing so that, as Paul said, we become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. We don't dismiss anything as a method to, to scatter the seed. We don't stay in the lab discussing the best farming methods and never get out and scatter the seed. Me and Jesse were talking about this Friday morning. This, we love how God has designed the crossing. We're in these DNA groups and missional communities where we're doing life together. We're, 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 we're good at, at several things. You know, It feels like there's, there's good transparency and authenticity. We're confessing sin one to another. We're preaching the gospel to each other. Can we grow in that? Yes. We're doing better than we've done before? Yes. That's good. And we were talking about how sometimes it feels a little trite, a little routine, because we're confessing the same sins. And we're giving each other the same remedy, the gospel, which is how it's going to be until we're dead. All right? I'm still struggling with lust. I'm still struggling with anger. I'm still struggling with selfishness. I'm still struggling with fear, anxiety, worry, just whatever it is. The remedy is the same. It's not going to change. Maybe, instead of spending all of our time confessing sins of commission, we start confessing sins of omission. I'm in relationship with these seven people that need to know the gospel of Jesus Christ and I want to share the gospel with them. Hold me accountable. Encourage me this week to make sure I open my mouth and say something to them. Oh, that's going to change everything. Now now we're actually going to have to live by faith. Now we're actually going to have to start doing things that require our dependence on the Holy Spirit and prayer. Now we're actually going to have to to step out and do bold things for Jesus. Get into hard conversations with people. And now we're going to find the power of community that God has given us to encourage each other, to help each other. Like if you, like I don't have any idea how to do that. There are people in this church that do know how to do that. Go to them, come to them, come to us, let us know, let's go do that together. Like, it's not going to be like it used to be when I pastored and people would call me up all the time. I, Can you go share the gospel with this person, my neighbor, my coworker that's down the street? And I'd love to do it. Yeah, I'd love to do that. I'd love opportunities to share the gospel. I'm stuck in this building all day. And I was doing a disservice. And I should have said, let's go do that together. 
And, and you can watch me do it if you're totally clueless, or I can train you for a little while, and we'll do it together. Like, we need to do this. This is our calling. This is what we're created for. Charles Spurgeon, a couple quotes by him. He said, The Christian church was designed from the first to be aggressive. It was not intended to remain stationary at any period, but to advance onward until its boundaries became commensurate with those of the world. This is spread from Jerusalem to all Judea, from Judea to Samaria, from Samaria to the uttermost part of the earth. It was not intended to radiate from one central point only, but to form numerous centers from which its influence might spread to the surrounding parts. You, you know what's going hap- you know to happen if we do that as a crossing church? We won't have three missional communities. Everyone who is in a missional community is going to create a missional community in their own home because you're being intentional as an individual, as a couple, to invite your neighbors, your coworkers, your family members into your life and share the gospel and make disciples and make disciples. It's just going to start happening. Not because we planned it or programmed it, but because the Spirit did it. Because we're all out there making disciples and make disciples. Sharing the Gospels. One other thing Charles Burgess said, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. God, help us be that people. This doesn't happen apart from indiscriminate sowing of the gospel to anyone and everyone far and wide. Maybe part of our motivation should come from the fact that in three of the four soils, they end in death. Not just unfruitfulness, it's death. I'm all I heard him talking this week about a study that was done in a mainline Protestant denomination that's become liberal in its theology and it's hemorrhaging people left and right. And I can get you the study if you want to know it later on. But the study that was commissioned by them to find out why are we losing so many people? One of the primary conclusions of this study was that the denomination no longer believed in the reality of hell. And if you don't believe hell exists, then what is your motivation to proclaim the gospel? To see people set for eternity in either heaven or hell. Pope Francis came out a couple weeks ago and made a shocking announcement that eventually everyone would be saved. This is ground-shaking for the world's largest Christian denomination to embrace universalism. We're going to continue to be marginalized for actually believing that people apart from Jesus will spend eternity in hell. We're going to be continually marginalized for proclaiming that Jesus alone is the only way of salvation. But we are going to continue to sow the seeds of the gospel. Because it is the only hope for us, it is the only hope for our city, it is the only hope for the nation. And guess what? See in the parable, there is fertile soil out there. It's out there, guys. We can find it as we are obedient to the the gospel to go and scatter the seed far and wide to anyone and everyone. Let's go.
Let's do this. Let's be this. Why we're here. It's what he's created us for. To give glory to Christ as people are encountered by Christ and changed by Christ far and wide. Father, we are grateful for your gospel. That you would save sinners like us. That you would come and dwell us, live in us. And even though we still sin, some amazing way you can still work in us and through us to change our hearts, to make us obedient, to bear fruit for your kingdom. So Father, I ask that however you're working in us, however you're working in the hearts of everyone here, that this would not just be a a seed of your word that we receive and, and temporarily we receive it with joy and it brings forth temporarily life but then it's choked and strangled by distractions or by fear of persecution. But the Father, you would, you would be digging this seed deep into our hearts this morning. And this week, this week, fruit would be born. We thank you for, for making us your people. And so help us to respond this morning in repentance and faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.